So where I want to start today is, uh, I want to start with Seinfeld actually. So a uh, bit of a Seinfeld fan. I'm not a fan of everything that happens in Seinfeld, I just need to say that. But uh, there's this really interesting clip at the start of an episode in uh, season three. And uh, if anyone knows what I'm talking about, uh, you're probably uh, not a teenager or in your early 20s. But if anyone knows the Pez Dispenser episode, this is the start of it. Um, here we go. You know, were you talking? I couldn't hear anything. <laughs> I was telling you about Noel. Oh, Noel, yeah, the one that plays the bongos. <laughs> so side-splittingly funny. <laughs> All right, I'm sorry. What about her? What, you think I'm going to repeat the whole thing, though? I know. You told me you like her. Everything's going good. No, everything's not going good. I'm very uncomfortable. I have no power. Why should she have the upper hand? Once in my life, I would like the upper hand. I have no hand. No hand at all. She has the hand. I have no hand. Hand me that, would you? How do I get the hand? We all want the hand. Hand is tough to get. You got to get the hand right from the opening. She's playing a recital this week at the McBearney School. You want to hear her play? I got two extra tickets. You and Elaine could go. Yeah, that sounds like something. (laughs) Then afterwards, maybe we could all go out together. You know, she'll see me with my friends. She'll observe me as I really am, as myself. Maybe I can get some hand that way. (laughs) You like that? Who's got the upper hand today, do you think? Anyone? Who who doesn't have hand? Anyone not have hand? Like, you just, I mean, some... It's interesting. It's, I mean, another another, uh, phrase that describes it is bargaining power. You know, you can just get in a situation, you don't have the upper hand, you don't have any bargaining power, and you're kind of at the mercy of other people. Uh, Collins Dictionary says that bargaining power is the ability of a person, group or organisation to exert influence over another party in a negotiation in order to achieve a deal which is favourable to themselves. And you can see there what George is doing is he's saying, I want to manoeuvre myself to a point where I actually have some power and I'm able to influence situations for my own good. Well, the really interesting thing is if you translate that idea into a uh, a biblical, Christian, spiritual sense, uh, you actually realise, if you read the Bible for more than a few chapters, that human beings have very, very little hand when it comes to God. We have very, very little bargaining power. And what we actually see, and hopefully what you heard to some degree in Daniel chapter 9, is the prayer of a man on behalf of his nation that has no bargaining power. All right? And this is, I think this is really important for us to have a look at it um, because I think it's important for us to learn how to pray without bargaining power because none of us have bargaining power here with God. Nothing that you have, he doesn't want anything that you have in the sense that it's going to manipulate him or change his idea about how he's going to deal with you. All right? You could say, I've got money, and he'll go, well, I'll just make money. He can just create something out of nothing. You could say, well, I've got time and energy. He can just create that. Like at the end of the day, he doesn't need any of your stuff. The Bible's really clear about the fact that God doesn't need anything. The really interesting thing, though, I find is that a lot of the time what actually happens with Christians and people that follow God, and even people who don't follow God, if you don't follow Jesus, is they they internally try to work out some ways to get some bargaining power over God. So you hear prayers like this, you hear, and I mentioned this last week, if you just do this, then I'll do this. And it's like, God's going to be really grateful if I give the rest of my life to him. Now, he likes the fact that people give the rest of their lives to him. But you know what? He can just create people. 
So if he wanted someone to give the rest of their life to him, he could just make someone out of nothing. He doesn't, in, strictly speaking, he doesn't need your life. It's not like if, if you don't give your life to him, it's not like God's going to be sitting in a corner crying somewhere, all bummed out about, about the fact that he's missing something and he's really needy now and he doesn't get your life. Now, don't hear in this that God's careless and he doesn't love you because he does love you, right? But he doesn't love you because he needs your love. He loves you because he is love. And that's a big difference. If he loves you because he needs your love, he's pathetic. True? He's pathetic. And he's not worthy of your worship. But the fact is, he doesn't need your love, but he loves you anyway. And this is what we actually see in Daniel chapter 9. Let me give you a couple of other examples about the way that we try to gain bargaining power over God. I think sometimes in the way that we pray, we try to gain bargaining power over God. Now, we know that we're not that smart, probably, a lot of the time. Some of you are going, no, I, I actually am. All right? But, you know, have you ever prayed one of those prayers where you start to use some tricky words and you think God's going to be impressed? Have you ever done that? I mean, I, I personally think a lot of the reason why people don't pray in churches is because prayers, a lot of the time, turn into speeches. And it's like the person who gives the best speech wins. It's kind of a reality TV show in the worst possible way. <coughs> We pray, we use fancy words, we use fancy phrases, we say things that we think are going to impress him. Maybe we use the correct emotions. Sometimes our religion, we think our religion will impress him. So we do the right things. We, uh, we act the right way. See, if I just do this, he's going to be really happy with me and that's going to get me some bargaining power with him. Well, I want you to hear today, whether you follow Jesus or you don't, you don't have any bargaining power with God at any level. None. And I'd just encourage you to be okay with that. Now, some of you would be going, hang on, I think we, maybe we do. Well, there's an alien bargaining, bargaining power, and we're going to get to that at the end, right? But you, in yourself, you have no bargaining power with him. So what I want to do, do today is uh, I just want to look at prayer and bargaining power. And here's the four points we're going to go through today. How to pray without bargaining power. The first thing you do is you start early. And I don't mean early in the morning. I just mean early on. That'll make sense in a while. The second thing is you need to be a realist when it comes to your own record. The third thing is your only hope is God's character. And the fourth thing is I'm, I'm going to finish with is an alien bargaining power. The first one's this, start praying early. And we actually see this in Daniel 9 verse 1 to 3. In the first year of Darius, the son of... Everyone say that? I can't say it either. By descent, a Mede, who was made king over the realm of the Chaldeans in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, perceived in the books the number of years that according to the word of the Lord to Jeremiah the prophet must pass before the end of the desolations of small, I mean, uh, Jerusalem, um, namely 70 years. Now, notice a few things about this scripture. Daniel prays out of the scriptures. Do you see that? He's a keen student of scripture. One thing my dad always taught me is he said, you don't just sit down to pray uh, without your Bible open. He said, sit down with your Bible open and have a conversation with God. So read a section of the Bible, talk back to him, let him talk to you through the scriptures and through the Holy Spirit and have a good conversation. It appears that Daniel based his prayer life on the scriptures. The really interesting thing is the prophecy that Daniel was reading was from a guy called Jeremiah, who you probably heard of. And he actually died only probably one or two decades before Daniel was actually praying this prayer and he was, he was counting up the years. 
What's fascinating about that is Daniel recognised that Jeremiah was speaking God's word. And he actually gave authority to what Jeremiah had said. Let me give you a couple of other technical things. King Darius started reigning in 539 or 538 BC. The starting point for Daniel's captivity, uh, as far as we know, was 604 BC. What this means, if you're not a mathematician, is this. Daniel started praying, it appears, about three to four years before the end of the 70 years. All right? This is not like the 70 years are up and it's like two days' time, the 70 years are going to be up. He starts about three or four years beforehand. Okay? So when you don't have any bargaining power, you know what you need to do is you need to start early. All right? You don't wait till the end. It's not like, oh, right, I'm in a whole bunch of crap right now and I've just got to do something about it and I could see this coming for the last 18 months and now I've just got to get myself out of it. The problem with that is that you're probably more interested in self-preservation than you are in actually what you're praying about. And God tends to be a little bit slower to react to people who are engaged in self-preservation. Now, the interesting thing about it is you can actually see some of... uh, Well, I was thinking about this and I thought, what would happen in the church today if we read a prophecy about God going to do something in 70 years' time and it was almost up? Well, you know, some of what I think would happen in the church is like, why pray? It's going to happen anyway. You see that? It's almost like we get a, uh, a Christian version of fatalism. And it comes from the sovereignty of God. The secular view is fatalism. The Christian view is God's in charge. He's sovereign. He said it's going to happen, so it's just going to happen. Now, we were in community group last week and someone last week was saying, look, of all the prayer problems you mentioned, mine wasn't up there. Mine is that I don't pray because I just think God's plan is going to happen anyway. And do you think Daniel was thinking that? I don't think so. Because God's made it really clear that there's a whole bunch of things throughout history that are going to happen as a result of prayer. That's how he's designed it to be. And Daniel's not like that. So, I mean, the classic, there's a song out at the moment and I hope that you're not listening to it too much. Isn't it Justice Crew or something? Que sera, sera. Whatever will be, will be. And unfortunately, in a lot of churches, it tends to be more uh, mainline churches, they're very que sera, sera. Whatever will be, will be. We'll just take it. Now, Daniel's not like that, is he? He's going, we've got to get onto this. And we've probably got three or four years, maybe, and we need to get onto this, and we need to get onto this now. And I would ask you, if you're someone who just kind of goes, oh, well, God's plan's going to come about, let me ask you, what if God plans to bring it about through your prayers? Because he does. There's a whole bunch of stuff where God says, I'm going to bring about such and such through your prayers. And James 4 would say to you, God would say to you through James 4, he says, you have not because you ask not. So if you're someone who doesn't actually ask God in prayer for stuff because you're kind of caseros, whatever will be, will be, Christian fatalism, all right, God's sovereign, he's going he's to do whatever he wants to do, he can just do. Hear today that you have not because you ask not from James 4, you need to hear that. Because who knows how much stuff in your life over the last few years has God maybe wanted to do and the means through which him doing it was you praying and you didn't pray about it. So he says, well, you don't get it. <laughs> now, part of, part of you right now probably should be a bit disappointed if, you, if you're one of those people, all right? Because you just missed out on stuff. Don't miss out on stuff. Start 
praying early. If you want to, this will be online. You can check out the, uh, the further prophecies from Jeremiah 25 and Jeremiah 29 about the 70 years. Uh, you can get into the history stuff. I'm not going to go massively into it now, uh, but it'd be worth you having a look at that. Second point is this. Be a realist regarding your own record. Listen to this. Then I turned my face to the Lord God, seeking him by prayer and pleas for mercy with fasting and sackcloth and ashes. I prayed to the Lord my God and made confession, saying, O Lord, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. We have sinned and done wrong and acted wickedly and rebelled, turning aside from your commandments and rules. Here's what, here's what Daniel's saying. He's saying, we had a deal with you. You kept your end of the deal. We didn't. And what does he do? He turns to God and he says he's got a very realistic view of their transgressions. Now, what's really interesting about this is there's a physical posture that accompanies the spiritual posture here. All right. Now, if you look at verse 3 there, it says there that Daniel sought God by prayer, pleas for mercy with fasting and sackcloth and ashes. Let me tell you what sackcloth is. Sackcloth is a dark coloured, often black material of coarse goat hair or camel hair used for making grain bags and garments. It was actually really uncomfortable. All right? It wasn't a comfortable, nice kind of fleecy line thing. It was actually pretty uncomfortable. Uh, and it's actually said of Jacob that he put, uh, I have to say this, he put sackcloth on his loins. And I thought, well, you probably would mourn after a while if you had sackcloth on your loins. And not only that, but uh, Daniel goes on to say he actually put ashes on himself so they'd get the remains of a fire and they'd have this sackcloth on and they'd have these ashes on themselves to indicate mourning. Um, it, it signifies, the ashes signifies worthlessness or debased objects or ideas. And so there's a sense in it that Daniel's saying, look, uh, I'm in sackcloth, I'm in ashes, we're in a really, really bad place. And I think one of the things that this says to us is that there needs to be, I think, a physical posture that accompanies a spiritual posture. And I think this can include things like this. It could include spending more time in prayer. Someone without bargaining power knows they need to actually pray and they need to seek God and seek his mercy. It, it might, need, might mean kneeling, kneeling, kneeling fasting maybe maybe you go without food maybe you go without tv maybe you go without any kind of media it might mean a, a troubled spirit a sense of urgency and i would ask you today what are the physical realities that accompany your spiritual posture you see when we talk about physical realities that accompany someone's emotional state you know what we call that we call that body language all right as someone said to me a couple of weeks ago i don't even know who it was someone said oh peter looked a bit stressed why did Peter look stressed? Well, Peter looked stressed because his body was communicating something. All right? So if you're penitent, if you're sorry, if you realise that you don't have any bargaining power at all, how can we tell physically that you feel like that? And then you actually see in um, Daniel 9, verse 4 to 5, Daniel says, I prayed to the Lord my God and made confession, saying, O Lord, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments, we've sinned and done wrong and acted wickedly and rebelled, turning aside from your commandments and rules. Can you see what Daniel's actually doing here? What he's actually doing is he's intermingling 
God's transcendence and God's intimacy. He's far away and he's grand, but he's also close. He's also someone who loves. And the trouble for Daniel is when he realises that God's transcendent and God's amazing, but he's also close, he realises that his character doesn't kind of match up and his nation's character doesn't match up. And it just doesn't quite work with our particular record. We don't stack up well. And what we actually see here is we actually see from Daniel is he, there's no writer's embellishment, all right? There's no reinterpretation of it. He doesn't sit down and think of all the positives. And this is kind of what we do when we get together sometimes. It's like, yeah, you've done all this stuff wrong, but let's think about the positives. Let's think about 50 or 60 positive things that we can think about. Yeah, you didn't do that, but you could have done that. And seriously, I reckon one of the best things that's ever happened to people who want to feel good about themselves is that Hitler lived, right? Because <laughs> no one's as bad as Hitler. <laughs> He's an idiot. Like, what was he doing? You know? And there's a sense in which we can kind of sit down and we can think of some excuses or we can think of some ways that we're not as bad as Hitler and we can make ourselves feel good. But D Daniel doesn't do that. He doesn't look for any excuses. He doesn't try to rationalise the stuff that he does. He says, look, we've got nothing. And at some level, I would just encourage you, honestly, we've all just got to come to the point at some point in time, and probably regularly, where we just go, look, at some level, I'm just not a nice person. I'm not that nice. Now, you may be nice relative to other people on the planet. Maybe you're a saint compared to Hitler. But I'll tell you something, and hear me well, you won't get an accurate view of yourself by comparing yourself to other fallen people. You just don't. It's impossible that you would get an accurate view of yourself by comparing yourself to other people. You don't work out whether a garment's clean by comparing it to a dirty garment. You need to work out whether a garment's clean, you need to compare it to a clean garment. You see, the seriousness of an offence isn't found by comparison to other people who have committed similar offences. The seriousness of an offence generally comes, I mean, you can get a bit of a sense of it from an innocent person, but you get the best sense of the seriousness of an offence based on who you've actually committed the offence against. Now, I could go up to a child in the street and poke them in the arm and say, you're an idiot. And that would mean a completely different thing to me going up to Queen Elizabeth and poking her in the arm and saying, you're an idiot, wouldn't it? Because there's a sense in which the offence is relative, in a sense, to the person that it's done against. And the one that we've committed our offence against is the one who sets the records for everything. He's the one who sets morality for everything because every single law in the Scriptures is a reflection of who God is. It's God telling you what he's actually like. And what we find in Psalm 51 with David, uh, after he'd committed adultery with Bathsheba, then got a husband drunk and had him killed, is uh, he says this, he says, it's against you and you only that I've sinned. Now he knows that that's the ultimate comparison. He's not just saying, look, I sinned against Uriah and I sinned against Bathsheba, I sinned against you. That's what happened ultimately. And that's the most serious offence. And then Daniel goes on to say this in verse 6 and 14. He says, God, we ignored you. He says, we've not listened to your servants, the prophets, who spoke in your name to our kings, our princes and our fathers and to all the people of the land. Therefore, the Lord has kept ready the calamity and has brought it upon us. For the Lord our God is righteous in all the works that he has done 
and we have not obeyed his voice. You know, one thing I can absolutely guarantee without any qualms about the fact that it's 100% true is that everyone in this room has ignored God at some point in time this week. You've ignored him. And you know, some of you knew it when you ignored him. You knew, you, maybe some of you even had the scripture going through your head where God was telling you where he wanted you to go and what he wanted you to do and you went and did what you wanted to do anyway. You knew it. Even in your own conscience, you knew that there was a problem with what you were going to do and you went ahead and did it anyway. And in a sense, we all ought to pray the prayer with Daniel saying, God, we ignored you. Did you come and tell us? Yes, you did. Did we ignore it and do it anyway? Yes, we did. And so Daniel says, we ignored you when you sent people to help us. When you sent the prophets to help us, we ignored them. And not only did the uh, people of Israel ignore the prophets, they actually martyred some of them. And Daniel says, look, (laughs) we're getting our comeuppance. It's it's not like, man, that's a bit unfair. He's going, no, we're getting our comeuppance. Because you told us, you warned us, you came and you tried to speak to us. And uh, all these calamities are coming upon us and we're getting what we deserve. And you know what? Here's another thing. If you're a note taker, you should take this down. If you realise that you don't have any bargaining power, people who realise they don't have any bargaining power with God don't wait for God to say, I told you so. They say it themselves and they say it early. Does it make sense? Because a lot of times what actually happens is we do stuff and I, I reckon there's a real blindness that goes on with, with humans sometimes where we do stuff and then something bad happens and we go, why is this bad thing happening to me? Now it's not all the time because troubles come upon people but there's a sense in which we don't see the connection between our actions and our consequences probably enough. Now, does God come out and say, I told you so, I told you that was happening, that was going to happen? Well, maybe not exactly like that, but this is kind of a little bit like an I told you so. I sent my prophets to you and I told you this was going to happen, uh, but you didn't turn. Prayer without bargaining power concedes before it is told. And we need to be quick, I believe, at conceding. And then Daniel goes on further and uh, he doesn't put it like this. This is a bit of a Sondergel version. But I basically think that where he goes then is he talks about the fact that we're selectively deaf idiots. Let me read the scripture then I'll explain. The curse and oath that are written in the law of Moses, the servant of God, have, have been poured out upon us because we've sinned against him. He has confirmed his words which he spoke against us and against our rulers who rule us by bringing upon us a great calamity. For under the whole heaven there has not been done anything like what has been done against Jerusalem. As it is written in the law of Moses, all this calamity, listen to this, all this calamity has come upon us, yet we have not entreated the favour of the Lord our God, turning from our iniquities and gaining insight by your truth. Do you hear what he's saying? Not only did we not listen to the prophets when God sent them, but we're stupid. Because he told us it was all going to happen, and even when it was happening to us, we didn't turn from it. We just kept going. And it's interesting, like, 
I was thinking about this and I just thought all of us to some degree are stuck in this bind where we do stupid stuff that hurts ourselves and others. Now I won't ask you for a show of hands but just have a think about it. I think about all the times in your life where you've done a certain thing and you knew it was going to be bad in the end. Like you knew it, like you're sitting there and you're just going, I really want to do that, but I know that that's going to be bad and that's going to hurt me in the long run and that's going to hurt this one and this one and this one and this one. This is what I should be doing. I'm going to do that. And you go and do it and then it hurts everyone. It's like, you're an idiot. True? Like you're an idiot. Like only an idiot would do something that is going to hurt a whole bunch of people, including themselves, when it just makes no sense. The uh, dictionary definition of an idiot is someone incapable of making a rational decision. And we make irrational decisions often, don't we? That cause damage. And Daniel's talking about that. He's saying the people of Israel are stupid. And you might go, oh, hang on, hang on, hang on. Does the Bible call people stupid? Yes, it does. All right, let me give you a scripture. Proverbs 12 verse 1. Listen to this. This is the ESV. Whoever loves discipline loves knowledge, but he who hates reproof is stupid. In my house, people don't like being called stupid. And I don't let my kids call each other idiots. All right? I think it takes a special talent to be an idiot. Okay? Because you've got to make irrational decisions all the time to be an idiot. And that's very difficult. All right, now you might know some people you think they're actually very talented, they get very close. All right, but it would be true that there would be times where you just go, What an idiot! Now, I hope that there would be times for you where you just go, What an idiot! What an idiot I was! Now, I look back on the last 25 years of my life and I see lots of what an idiot moments. What an idiot! It's like, Do you have those where you just go, What the hell was I thinking? and it's like. You're going, oh, I think I know what I was thinking a little bit. But I didn't want to listen to the, uh, the good way, the, the helpful way, the healing way, the peaceful way. I wanted to go the messy way. And then we say things like, and I'll just have a quick swing at this. Then we say things like, God hates the sin but loves the sinner. Now, there's something valuable in that saying, but generally I don't like it. I think it's a, it, I think it's a confusing saying. And the reason why I think it's confusing is because sin is intentionally sin. It's not like you've got a good person who kind of messes up and they lie about something. No, there's, there was someone a lot of the time who just decided that they were going to lie. And I think the truth of the gospel of the good news about Jesus is not that God loves the sinner but hates the sin. I think the good news of the gospel is that God loves stupid people. That God loves idiots. <laughs> True? I mean, that's our great hope. It's like in the moment where you're an idiot, the, the hope that you've got in that moment of idiocy is that God loves idiots. Anyone saying amen to that? And it's weird because some of you think, oh, Sondergeld, you're just getting down. No, I'm, getting, I'm not getting down. This is like there's good news here, right? I'm not getting down on you. Now, I remember uh, when I was at uni, I had some uh, uni mates. And uh, they were interesting uni mates. Uh, I was in, we were like the tradesmen of the uni campus, right? Went to Sydney Uni. Uh, the design and technology training, we're kind of the manual arts kind of guys. 
and we were kind of the tradesmen. So if anyone was doing something dumb, it was usually one of us. Um, so some dudes, a bunch of the manual arts guys went on a cruise uh, on Sydney Harbour and one of them ripped the light fitting off. Another one set fire to the boat. It's like, what? <laughs> uh, we'd be the guys, not me, but we'd be the guys sitting in a 300 strong lecture theatre throwing boomerangs made out of paddle pops down the front before the lecturer walked in. Uh, dumb stuff. And I remember, I remember one of my guys, we ended up getting banned from union activities down there. So my first year, of, of, I've just got to, this is totally disconnected and this is my own issue, but I'll work this out later. My first year of uni at Sydney Uni, I paid $350. This is like in 1990, I paid $350 for student union fees. All right? Ridiculous. Like imagine what that would be now. That would be like 800 bucks. And we got banned from going to union activities because of the way that we acted. They had this big meeting and we are all supposed to, I didn't go. I didn't. Anyway, I had these mates and, um, you know, they, they would go most weekends and just pub crawl all weekend, all right? And they would come in Monday morning and they'd have a sore head, you know, and they'd be complaining. And I remember having this conversation with one of them and I just said to him, man, you just, it really, you're in pain right now. He goes, yeah, like my head hurts so much. I said, okay, what did what, you get up to on the weekend? He goes, I can't remember any of it. I just said, well, okay, well, I guess you've learnt your lesson then. You can't remember any of it. It's kind of like a colonoscopy in a sense, isn't it? It's like you can have this brutal thing happen to you and you get a few days later, it's like, I don't even know what happened and now I'm just in pain. I'm just going, well, surely you've learnt your lesson. You can't remember anything and you're in pain. He goes, no, no, I'm going to do it next weekend. That's stupid. That's stupid. And we're a bit like that. When uh, one of my sons was... Uh, was younger, I think he was about three at the time, three or four at the time, I, uh, I spent quite a bit of time with him teaching him uh, the concepts of mercy and grace. And uh, I taught him that grace is getting something good that you don't deserve, like getting a present. And uh, I said that mercy is getting out of trouble. And uh, so we were in this rumble one time and uh, I was rumbling with him and uh, then I grabbed him, I said, I've got you. And then he grabbed me and he said, I've got you. And we just paused for a moment and I said, uh, do you know what a truce is? He goes, no, I don't. I said, a truce is when two people have got each other in trouble or two groups of people have got each other in trouble and they give each other mercy. And uh, I said to him, do you ever think that we'd need to make a truce with God? <coughs> you know what he said to me? He said, no, we don't ever need to make a truce with God. I said, why not? He goes, because he's not the one who's in trouble, it's us who are the ones who are in trouble. And that's the position that we find ourselves in. We've created a debt between us and God, and he's the one who's now got the power because of what we've done. In fact, he always had the power, but it's even exacerbated even more. See, the person that you've sinned against, any time that you sin or you create some kind of offence against someone and you create a debt with them, they get the power. Now, sometimes people try to grab it, but that's kind of how it works. And all of a sudden, you're actually at the mercy of the other person. And it, it kind of happens in our, uh, in our society that you're almost always at the mercy of the powerful person. And offence has a particularly a creative way of giving someone else power over you. <coughs> and you know what? Any time that you've offended someone else and they've developed power over you, your only hope at that point in time is actually in their character. 
right? It's like, what are they going to do now? That's the question in your head. What are they going to do now? If you're at work and you offend the boss and you don't do the right thing and you fail at work, right at that point in time, what becomes really critical is what is the character of my boss? Is my boss someone who's going to come after me? Is my boss someone who's going to show mercy? Is my boss someone who's hyper-vigilant about justice? And the way that your boss is is going to be really critical to the outcome and the peacefulness that you have. Everything depends on the character of the person with the power when there's been offence. And I want to suggest to you in point three here, your only hope is God's character. And this is where we get into the good news. Listen to Daniel. He says, To you, O Lord, belongs righteousness, but to us open shame. To us, O Lord, belongs open shame to our kings, to our princes and to our fathers because we've sinned against you. See that? You've got all the power. But I'm just going to remind you of what, who you are. And it's not because God forgets, but he's going to remind God, he's going to remind himself as to who God is. To the Lord our God belong mercy and forgiveness. O Lord, according to all your righteous acts, let your anger and your wrath turn away from your city Jerusalem, your holy hill, because for our sins and for the iniquities of our fathers, Jerusalem and your people have become a byword among all who are around us. Now therefore, O our God, listen to the prayer of your servant and to his pleas for mercy. Do you see this? There's a significant power shift. And Daniel knows his only hope is in God's character. So he talks about God's character a lot. O Lord, make your face to shine upon your sanctuary, which is desolate. You see, can you see with Daniel, God said that 70 years time it's going to be over. But he doesn't just bank on that in terms of just fatalism. There's still a dependence upon God's character. Even though God said that he's going to do a particular thing, Daniel's still dependent upon God to do what he said, right? So God's character is still kind of locked in there. God still needs to come through on his word. You see, you can write up a contract with someone. I mean, the days used to be that you'd shake hands on a deal and that would be it, right? Because it's actually the character of the other person that's critical in a business deal. And you know what? I don't think that's changed that much. Because people can find ways to get out of contracts, can't they? And even when they can't get out of contracts, there's some businesses that just go, well, it's just not worth prosecuting them. It's not worth taking them to court. It's going to cost me too much money. So even when you have a contract, even when you have a binding agreement, there's still a character issue that comes in there, in there that people still need to come through on what they've committed themselves to. Now, Daniel, I think Daniel's really confident about how God's going to respond but it's still dependent upon God's character. I don't know if you've ever noticed this verse in Isaiah 1, verse 18. It says, Come now, let us reason together. And God's calling people to come and reason with him. <laughs> and I think that's almost a hopeless situation. Well, what are you going to offer? Like, you could wax eloquent, couldn't you? And I could wax eloquent. What am I going to say with all the contraband that I've been going on with all these years, if he wants to sit down at a table and have a discussion with me and work some things out, I'm just going, well, I'm bringing nothing to contribute to that conversation. True? But it's, do you see there's some hope in there, right? Because it says, though your, skins are, your, skins, your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall be like wool. You see, it's all dependent upon God's character. 
And you see this in other places in the scriptures. In Psalm 119 verse 124, it says, deal with your servant according to your steadfast love. You see, the psalmist is not saying, listen, I've nailed it and I'm offering you this. He's going, look, my only hope is that your character is one of steadfast love. And it is. His character is like that. In Psalm 51 verse 1, this is uh, David about the, uh, the sin against Bathsheba and, and Uriah the Hittite. Have mercy on me, O God, according to what? Your steadfast love. Not my good words, my good prayer, not my good deeds, not the good things that I've done, not any kind of bargaining power that I've gained from any actions that I've come up with. Have mercy upon me according to your steadfast love. And we get to point four. What is the most amazing thing about Jesus and about God's plan is that he gives you bargaining power. But it's not a natural, innate bargaining power. It's an alien bargaining power. Listen first to what Daniel says in Daniel 9, verse 6 to 19. Notice the bold and the italicized sections. O Lord, according to all your righteous acts and for your own sake, the city that is called by your name because of your great mercy. Delay not for your own sake. Your city and your people are called by your name. God is committed to his own glory. And this is solid ground. And for some of us we think, well, he's conceited then. Well, you can't be conceited if you're the most beautiful, valuable, incredible being in the universe if you get glory, in fact, it would be wrong. It would be sinful if God didn't get glory because he is the most amazing being in the universe. And a great bargaining chip, and you can see it in prayers and supplications to God through the scriptures, is God, for your own name's sake, can you act and help us? The really cool thing, instinctively for us, we just go, well, I'm a bit uncomfortable about God going after glory for himself. Well, the cool thing is that God's worked out a way to help you and him to get glory all in the one package. And that's really good. And there's even part of it, probably, like there's some of us, I mean, if I was to be completely honest with you, I get a bit uncomfortable with God getting glory for himself. And to be honest with you, I think part of the reason why is because I want more. I'd actually like a little bit of his. And there's this really interesting biblical kind of thread that weaves through the bible where if you are trying to steal glory from god you'll miss everything but if you let him have it all he'll give you some he'll give you some willingly and you don't need to steal it you see daniel knows this in daniel 9 verse 7 he says to you O lord belongs righteousness but to us open shame you know what we need is what we actually need is we need a character swap that's what we need when you hear Daniel say that in Daniel 9 verse 7, we actually need a character swap. In Daniel 9, 8 to 9, To us, O Lord, belongs open shame to our kings, to our princes, to our fathers, because we've sinned against you. But to the Lord our God belong mercy and forgiveness, for we have rebelled against him. And you know what? The law and principles never, ever bring human beings out of hiding. They don't. Like if I got up here today and I said, right, we're going to have a line-up at the end of church and I'm going to crack down on you for everything that you've done wrong. Apart from the fact that that's not my job to do that, what would be your instinct? Well, you'd just want to hide stuff, wouldn't you? That doesn't bring you out of hiding. 
You see, what brings people out of hiding is love and mercy and grace. And God would call us out of hiding today. And you see here at the end of Daniel's prayer in uh, verse 20 to 23, note this. While I was speaking and praying, confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel and presenting my plea before the Lord my God for the holy hill of my God, while I was speaking in prayer, the man Gabriel, an angel whom I had seen in the vision at, at, at the first, came to me in swift flight at the time of the evening sacrifice. He made me understand, speaking with me and saying, O Daniel, I have now come out to give you insight and understanding. Listen to this. At the beginning, at the beginning, that's a long prayer, right? At the beginning of your pleas for mercy, a word went out, and I've come to tell it to you, for you are greatly what? Loved. See, God loves us, and it's God's love for us that gives us bargaining power, but it's not an innate bargaining power. It's a bargaining power that comes out of his love for us. You can see this in Romans 5 verse 6. For while we were still what? Weak. For while we didn't have any bargaining power. No bargaining power. At the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. And then this. There's this theological word called imputation. Imputation is that God's record on the cross gets taken away from Jesus and given to us and our record gets taken away from us and given to Jesus. You see, it wouldn't actually help that much if God just made you neutral and took away all your bad stuff. You need to actually be made righteous. You need to be made right and holy and good. And this is exactly what God does. 2 Corinthians 5 verse 21 says, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness, the goodness of God. And then, you know what happens? You know what the result of all this is? Hebrews 4.16 Let us then, with confidence, draw near to the throne of grace. You see that? All of a sudden we're not weak anymore. All of a sudden we're not in trouble. All of a sudden we're not lacking bargaining power. All of a sudden we've got all the bargaining power in the world. And the writer of Hebrews says... So the gig now is don't be all scared and weak and troubled about how God's going to respond to you because it's locked in in Jesus. The writer of Hebrews in Hebrews 4 has just, has just talked about how you've got a great high priest. You've got a great person who's actually come in and he sorted the mess out. So now you don't have a lack of bargaining power. Now you've got infinite bargaining power because Jesus put his name on the line for you. Amen? This is exciting. And so he says you can be really confident now. And you can come. And every time you have that thought, he's not going to listen to me. I have no bargaining power. I've offended him. You need to go to Christ. And you need to say, Jesus died for me. And he loves me. And I can ask you for this now. And I ask you for this not because I have any bargaining power, not because I have any hand, but because he has massive bargaining power, infinite hand, and he's died on my behalf and he's given me my record. Hallelujah. Well, you're a bit subdued. Isn't that good? I tell you, on Judgment Day, you're going to be really happy about that. All right? Because you're going to see an awesome sight when Jesus comes back. And you better make sure that you've got someone on your team or you're on someone else's team who's got all the hand on Judgment Day. All right? Because on Judgment Day, 
Jesus is going to have all the hand. Revelation's really clear about the fact that he's the one that's going to judge people. He's going to have all the hand. So you want to be on his team. Now, if you're on his team, massive bargaining power. Amazing. Daniel came out boldly praying based on God's character. How much more can we? How much more can we? And God would say to you today, come out of hiding, sinner. Come out of hiding those who have no bargaining power. And come and get bargaining power.